I am recording, uh, but I have no idea what we're talking about. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, the Pillar's co-founder and editor, Ed he is indeed a dad. I was going to say soon to be a father of Condon, but that's not true. I, I, I'm, I mean, you know, I'm pro-life. Ed, he's somebody's daddy, Condon. Ed, <laughs> how are you? I'm, I'm fine, JD. Um, I'm a little tired. A little tired. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, well, it's been guy. one of the. There, we've. I think we've both spent more than are are already more than usual number of hours on the phone this week, and we usually spend quite a few. So. Um, yeah, yeah, we have been we have been working the phones this week for a story that we were working on that we can't talk about because we can't um, publish it yet. And we we it's a tricky thing. Here here you go, everybody. Um, standards are self imposed, right? Especially when you own your thing and when you're two guys and and all of that. So Ed and I have been chasing a story all week, a story that we think is important, a story that we think matters, a story that we think is a big story, and we have just been chasing it and chasing it. And by some metrics, we have it. I mean, like, there are people who would publish the story with what we have. But we don't feel like we have it yet. And uh, we want to kind of nail it down. Like, we feel like we have nailed it down with three nails and we want 10. And so we're, we've been just working it on the phones to be sure. Uh, and we, I mean, do you, do you think that's, you're making a face. Do you think that's a fair characterization? No, I think it's fair. I think for sure some, like you said, standards are self-imposed. And I think we have... Um, we, we've developed, I think, a, a good set of standards for ourselves about not, um, not reporting things that we think are happening, but reporting things that we know and more importantly, things that we can absolutely say have happened. Prove in the external forum in a certain way. Like I think we, we're, we're working on a story and I think we feel like we know that this, that these things that we want to report on are indeed happening, but can we prove them in the external forum? So to speak, not yet, or not yet, but more importantly, I think we can't. And this is the thing: is journalism doesn't stop when you when you know something happened. It stops when you can't know anymore and you can't get anymore. There's no right, more to right. get exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, there's plenty of stuff that we report that you know we, we confirm with two or three different people, and that's good enough because we know there's nothing more to be had. You're not going to get you know a, a, do- a transcript of a conversation that you know, a couple of people told you it's happened. And but even there, we, if we report something that two people have told us, we usually say, people are saying this, you know, if we want right. to say this happened, we need to have it down cold and we're not there yet. No, we're not this. there yet. And, we, and we've been know, working the phones. Like you said, it's not enough to have one nail in it. I want 68 nails in it. Yeah, I think that's right. And they're, they're, it's kind of funny because we both at various times have been like, well, maybe we have enough. And the other one's like, I don't think, you know, I, I think we can do better. So we've been pushing. Yeah. There's, there's more to get and we're going to get it. Indeed. But I don't want to talk about that right now, Ed. Why? Largely because uh, we're talking about it very vaguely because we uh, don't feel like we have it enough to talk about it, talk about it. And so we're talking about it in these vague ways that I don't really like. And I want to talk about something real, something concrete, something provable, something demonstrable. Um, I want to talk about UFOs. And I'll tell you why. Um, you just gave me a funny look, buddy. I was, this is not, I was, unex, this is unexpected. I, okay, we're going to talk about UFOs. All right. When the December coronavirus relief package was signed into law, Ed, one proviso of that relief package was a report uh, required of U.S. intelligence agencies to tell Congress what they know about unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs, or if you prefer the older nomenclature, if you're a traditionalist about these sort of things, unidentified flying objects, UFOs. This is serious. 
um, a number of uh, <laughs> uh, a number of um, intelligence agencies are required by uh, by federal law, federal law that passed in December, was signed into law in December, to file a report with Congress on um, what the government knows about UAPs, unidentified aerial phenomena. And um, I have a question at this that, time. Yes, sir. If the objects in question are of their nature unidentified or unknown, how can they tell you what we know about them if they are, if you like, by definition, known unknowns? One can have knowledge of a thing without identifying it. For example, outside of my window right now, Ed, I hear a bird. I couldn't tell you for the life of me what sort of bird that is. I can't identify that bird in any meaningful way except to say it's a bird, which, you know, if someone later proved to me that it was a plane, a rat or something, you know, then I guess I'd have to, I'd have to go with that or a plane. Anyhow, um, those things can be identified with some, while uh, unidentified while at the same time people have some knowledge of them. And this report to Congress is coming. And uh, the reason, I don't know how much you have followed the news about this, but there are kind of two categories of UAP that are kind of floating around out there. One is sort of the like, you know, stuff that's like, you know, people think they saw a disc in the air in the 50s back in Kansas or whatever. But then more recently, there have been all these naval reports. A lot of them have been sort of picked up by um, by FOIA requests. Uh, all these naval reports about these things kind of zipping around um, either military bases uh, or um, uh, zipping around um, – naval ships out out to sea and they seem to have un, extremely unusual flight patterns they seem to do things that um, are surprising they seem to travel at hypersonic speeds or go up and down and and uh, and these things have been sort of unidentified they're uaps but they're not sort of regarded as ufos in the traditional sense what i honestly think they are is drone technology spy drone technology of uh China or Russia or some other powerful entity, uh, you know, some other powerful country that has developed the sort of drone technology that we're not accustomed to. But that stuff, to some extent, is going to be uh, in the report as well. I'm disappointed in you. Why? You, that's what you think this is? Well, you no, think, look. You think Russia's got some really fancy drone technology? That's I what think, you think this is? I, I think that there's probably some Free real... your mind. Flynn? <laughs> first of all, I want to take issue with something you did, which is you said there are two kinds of UFOs. And the first one you characterized as being the spooky 1950s I saw a flying saucer. First of all, there was a lot of weird I don't think I um, said spooky. Testing. No, you didn't. But that was the clear implication. You were dismissing it paranormal, as just uh, a paranormal stuff. You, you, you arched your face and you 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 were being snotty and dismissive and suggesting that these were people who wear a lot of um turquoise jewelry and, and live in trailer parks in the desert that's somewhere so were... interesting that you made that conclusion because i was more thinking about like sort of kansan farmer dryland you know uh dryland kansan farmers in the 50s who wear a lot of plaid and overalls i presume based upon either a couple way of you were you were strongly implying that a person lacked credibility from the era of the 1950s as they reported oh, ufos now First of all, there were a lot of UFOs in the 1950s, not least because we were testing some cool stuff. We were indeed, and so were the Ruskies. So there's that. Second of all, do you know what? Do you know what the first major con report to Congress on you? Who wrote the first major report to Congress on UFOs? Bobby Kennedy. No, it was a scientist. It was a well-respected nuclear physicist. Niels Bohr. Uh, a, no, I don't know a, any other nuclear physicist. of the American. Well, the other, Neil, you should Neil's be Neil's friends. No. Um, it was a man named Edward Condon. <laughs> Dr. Edward a Condon. A relative of yours? Wrote, 
Well, I mean, I'm sure he's in the family. But you're somewhere. Edward Francis Condon the four, I think. I believe you're Edward Con- Francis Condon the fourth. I, you're wrong. But what um, are you? Fifth? I, look, it doesn't matter. Why? Why? What, what do you want to like read my social security number out on the show? <laughs> no, too? but I'm pretty this sure is, that's your name. I'm pretty sure you're Edward this, Francis Condon. I'm glad that you have ambiguity over this. That's <laughs> I prefer it that way. Now. <laughs> No, this was Edward Euler Condon. Oh, Edward this, Euler um, Condon. Sure, 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 sure. I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten about him because I thought that the only guy I knew was Niels Bohr, but I also knew about Edward Euler Condon. And he wrote the Condon Report. He did. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to be clear. There's, there, there, there used to be a period in this country where reasonable scientific minds could, could be open to this sort of nonsense before our, our sort of horrendous, um, crushing, materialistic postmodern cynical world well you know the condon uh, report was deeply dismissive of any kind of you know yes thing. but it wasn't afraid to ask the questions and this is <laughs> my point it was okay i think it was <laughs> <laughs> anyway i uh no i i have i well look i wrote about ufos in my newsletter i know you did. Uh, two weeks ago in fact i'm a romantic about this sort of thing jd well that's what i have been getting questions about because i suppose maybe they're prompted by your newsletter i i perhaps they're prompted by your newsletter but because this report is headed towards congress and these kinds of things i have been getting a lot of questions about the sacramental questions about uh about about aliens right if there were other sentient beings could they get mm-hmm. hitched could they get baptized could they be ordained da, 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 da. and you did write about that so maybe you take it well i didn't write about that oh okay I mean, I, I wrote about the where the church is and the sort of theological possibility of of extraterrestrial life. Well, I know what I've been telling um, people, but where, what did you write? Well, the church basically has an open mind about these things. I think there was there was a quote. I've been I tried to find it when I was writing that newsletter, and as usual, I was writing it to a very 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 tight deadline late at mm-hmm, night. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I gave up after I couldn't find it in ten minutes. Um, but there was a quote from one of the popes. I I can't remember if it was Pius the twelfth or if it was John the twenty third. But one of the popes had a quote uh, when when asked about this in the sort of uh, you know middle part of the 20th century, and, and de- described the looking for extraterrestrial, extraterrestrial life as searching for the fingerprints of God. Mm-hmm. And I like this image. And you know, the there's a, a theologian, um, a theologian and astrologer, um, sorry, astronomer, not an astrologer. That would be terrible. Um, yeah, an astrologer is a totally different thing, buddy. No, this guy is not. A, yeah. Um, anyway, there's an astronomer and a theologian at the Vatican Observatory. Brother Guy. Uh, who might. Uh, no, I don't think it's the, that one. It's a, there's, there's another, another one. There's another one? <laughs> just giving up on my train of thought. Go ahead. I just didn't know there was another one. I thought Brother Guy was it. I thought that Brother Guy was Maybe it. Maybe he is it. But my point is that he's the, the guy I'm thinking of, and I can't remember his name now. It's a Spanish name. I He's a professor, I think, at Santa Croce. Um and also hangs out at the Vatican Observatory from time to time. Anyway, his stuff crops up in there's a there's an FAQ at the Vatican Observatory on some of this stuff, and he crops up in that and talks about things. And anyway, he described it as the theology of the church and the theological conception of creation of the church neither you know sort of excludes or um, necessarily encompasses the idea of extraterrestrial. That it's you know it's one of the things like we don't. We don't have a, you know, the church doesn't have a mind when we're in it. The thought of the church, the conception of creation of the church doesn't rule this in or out, that it's a totally open question. And and that's part when I said, you know, I'm a romantic about these things, that that, that was the thing I liked about it. It's not that I think that there are, you know, flying saucers, buzzing aircraft carriers. I, I doubt it. Um, and I certainly don't think there are little green men anywhere 
Well, there there might be, but you know, they, they we probably created those, you know, with, <laughs> I don't know, some sort of experiment or something. I don't know, but I, I don't believe, you know, that there's aliens running around the planet or any nonsense like that. But I, I like the idea. I like the theological romance of the idea of a, of a huge possibility that is sort of unresolved, kind of unresolvable, at least for the moment, and into which we can't port any of the stuff that we obsess about and fight about and everything else. Like all of the arguments that we have in the church and in our day is like all of And this is the thing that, you know, you sometimes, I think this is one of the reasons why people stopped taking the possibility of um, UFOs or extraterrestrial intelligence or the possibility of life on other planets or in other galaxies or whatever else seriously is I think because what it puts us up against is it calls into question every, uh, almost our entire worldview. Whether you're a religious person, whether you're a total secular person, whether you're a rank materialist, whether you're a hippie, we tend to have a very um, egocentric and anthropocentric cosmology. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In which we are just, we're it. We're all there is. And all of our conversations, all of our debates, all of our everything is simply related, is is an exercise of sort of existential navel gazing and to sort of blow the roof off of our entire conception of the universe and our place in it, I think is is, is fascinating and wonderful. And I think actually, if you are of a religious frame of mind, you you probably would have a more robust um, response to, to that if it were ever the proven to be the case. Because you already are disposition to believe that the universe doesn't revolve around humanity. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's easier, I think, for me to envision, perhaps because of perhaps because of precisely that sort of uh, special egocentricity, if you will. But it's easier for me to envision other universes that God has created other universes than it is for me to envision that God has created other sort of sentient and ensouled beings in this universe. I, I guess I really haven't examined why that is, but I'm skeptical about the notion of... Is this string theory? Is that what you're going I, I don't know. Because I, I, string theory is bullshit. Well, I'm sure it is. People, I've looked into people it. People start talking about string theory and it sounds silly to me, but what I mean is like other... Look, this is a... this is a um, God's creation is bound by certain things, time and space, right? Well, no. God's creation is not bound by certain things like time and space in that... Say, talk to Padre Pio. In right? that angels are created beings and... Um, you know, angels are neither temporal nor spirit, you know, nor physical, but, but God has created for us a world that is, um, bound by time and space, which does not mean that God can't act supernaturally beyond sort of the nature of the universe itself, which is, which, which, which includes those things. But, um, but this is a, this is, there's a finitude to this created, to this created thing. Um, in the beginning, in the beginning of what? This created thing. It is conceivable to me, I suppose, that God has created other created things, right? Is there anything that says necessarily that ours is the created, the singularly created world of God? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think so either. So in a certain way, it's easier for me to conceive of the idea of other created planes of existence, other created spheres of existence, if you will, than it is for me to imagine that there are sent, other sentient and ensouled beings in this sphere of existence. And the reason for that is because I don't know where they fit in the economy of salvation. Now you might think that it's now you might think that it's because of my egocentricity or whatever, but I think that I sh- I think that this is an egocentric world in that we uh, oh, this is an anthropocentric world anthropocentric world in that we are created in the image and likeness of God. All of these things are we have dominion over all of these created things and um and it's we who- they fill the earth and subdue it. It doesn't really <laughs> 
yeah, but I think we have dominion over all these created things, and we're supposed to exercise dominion over all these created things. And it's a sort of manifest destiny theology, it is. JD. It's, it I don't is. know. It's, <laughs> it's getting very close, maybe even to a prosperity gospel of the extraterrestrials. But it just—I know where all of the created order fits into the economy of salvation, and so it seems to me that if there are other ensouled and sentient beings in this universe, I don't know how they fit into the economy of salvation. People keep asking me, could we baptize an alien? And I love the space trilogy. I, I was shocked when I heard that you didn't read C.S. Lewis's space trilogy because I hope you, you will read it this weekend, um, which sort of creates these other planets with other sort of um, soteriological cosmologies. And it's really sort of very, very fascinating musing on what else God might have done or how else the salvation might be conceived. But I don't know how that fits into the physical world over which I perceive us to sort of have dominion. I know. That's why I think the idea is so cool. <laughs> so people are constantly asking me if – not constantly, but people have been asking me lately if aliens can be baptized, if aliens ought to be evangelized, if there were sentient sort of, you know, apparently ensouled uh, aliens, you know, race, a race of things. And you said – I'm a canonist. I deal with the things that are. If you want a hypothetical answer to a hypothetical question, ask a theologian. That's what they're for. If you want the abstract and the theoretical and the, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin and, you know, what's the valid matter for the baptism of a, you know, nine-armed silicone-based life form from the moons of Neptune, talk to a theologian. I I encourage every listener here. Find a theologian on Twitter and ask him a question about this because that's what they're for. That is what they're for. So you are like That's me. what they're for. Like, I mean, I sort of have given my view, which is that it's hard from – I do not know how another ensouled sentient being fits into the economy of salvation of this creative sphere of existence. It's and, and I suppose that makes me agnostic on the question. It sounds like you two are agnostic on the question. Uh, it's not that I'm agno- I, I okay. I'm cheerfully, almost aggressively agnostic on the question. <laughs> that is and that's in here. fact what. Yeah. Uh, but that's what I like about the question is I don't know where would it you know where would another creative and sentient um, being fit into the economy of salvation? I have no idea, and that's what I find romantic about the idea. Mm, yeah. Okay. And also, again, I'm a lawyer. It's not my job to figure it out when we do find one. I know it's not like, my problem. It's, it's it's it strikes. I guess for me, it strikes me as being. Yeah, it's categorically silly to me and that like would i evangelize an orca i don't even know what that means and probably would probably eat me right i mean no i would not evangelize an orca um and i presume that this did someone ask you if you'd evangelize a whale no but people say that whales you know like i watched this sigourney weaver thing recently in which she says that whales are sentient and etc etc which i don't think is true Uh, whales are not whales even if they what do we mean by sentient? Self-aware? Right. Even if they do have a certain kind of self-awareness, they're not ensouled in the way that we are. They're not made in the image and likeness of God that we are. And I think that they don't fit in the economy of salvation in the same way that we do. I, That's true. I, no, I do I, not... The animals, there are, there are only... There, there, are, there are us... And when it comes there's to us animals... There's us and the and animals. There's us and the animals. And the animals come in three varieties. Um, food... Fuel mm-hmm. or fertilizer. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. With an acceptable fourth bracket, which I don't really approve of, but it does use of toys. My um, and <laughs> well, you would everything else. No, yeah, I, I would say labor. You kind of forgot the category of labor. I was that's I meant that. That's what I meant by fuel. Oh, okay. I thought you meant dinosaurs that had been turned into oil. Oh, also that. No, it's a big umbrella. <laughs> so, so a border collie, a Clydesdale, and a dinosaur sort of all fit into that category together. Yeah, it's an assistance to human labor. Okay, good enough. I think that's a great that's a great sort of ca- I wish that I wish that that was sort of I wish we replaced the Linnaean classification system with that classification system it just seems better to me. I I I'm just here to offer alternatives. Yeah. Fair enough. Anyway, I don't know where I would not evangelize an orca. 
I'm inclined to think that any other created being in this universe is by definition an animal because we're made in the image and likeness of God. But I'm open to the idea that there are other spheres. It's like in, it's like Narnia. You know, um, what book is it where uh, they're in that – they're not in Narnia. They're in that other place, the pond, right? And the worlds are sort of being created and ending and they can hop into each pond. And each pond has its own – is its own sphere of existence, right? And has its own sort of economy of salvation. You know that one? Uh, no. I'll take your word for it. I will, I'm, so you've I'm read neither to... the Space Trilogy nor whichever Narnia that is. I, I have read the Chronicles of Narnia when I was, you know, six. I'm flipping that off right now. And um, I intend to read them again very soon because it, it, my wife and I were discussing literature for our unborn child. And um, I suggested, uh, you know, books that we would want to have ready to read to our unborn child when it's born. And we, we agreed that um, we would we would get started because apparently children can recognize voices um, in the womb. that they can Their ears can grow accustomed. I don't know. To the sound of adult voices. I don't remember being in the womb. And I ask my son, Davey, a lot if he remembers being in the womb and he says yes, but I think he's lying. Well, he he has a track record of messing with you for a fair bit. So, yeah, I don't know if he's a reliable witness. But either way, I'm I'm open to the possibility that this is true. So we decided that if there was going to be a sort of, you know, reading to the unborn child, we would probably start with the Chronicles of Narnia because it would be age appropriate. <laughs> and, um, you know, graduate from there. You're terrible. You're You're terrible. Do you believe in the Narnia Code? The the what? The Narnia Code. It was a book that was published um, on the works of C.S. Lewis and specifically the Narnia books. It was it's it was in the last twenty years. I forget exactly when, but um, basically the idea was trying to various people, as I've understood, have tried to uncover you know because there's a great thematic difference between all of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you have pointed out in this. Besides the space trilogy, C.S. Lewis had a fascination with the cosmos, did, not indeed. just outer space, but the concept of the cosmos yeah. and the seven heavens and all yeah. this stuff. And so uh, there was a book 15 years ago, give or take, I think called The Narnia Code, in which it was suggested that the thematical differences in the Chronicles of Narnia books could be understood as each representing one of the planets as defined in the sort of seven heavens and the, the the spheres of the cosmos. And also, I think it's... Who wrote the the music, uh, the classical music series, The Planets? Was it Vivaldi? Sure. Yeah. Um, but in corresponding to that, and that this is why, you know, so the the planet of Jupiter thematically in, in um, cosmology is representative of kingship and grandeur and, um, you know, and that this is corresponds to, I think, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And, and anyway, it was a whole thing. I, I read it at the time, and I thought it was reasonably interesting for you know something about a series of books that I am not personally emotionally invested in, but I found it nevertheless interesting. I have no doubt. I, I mean, no, I have no knowledge of this, but I would not be surprised just sort of knowing about Lewis's fascination with sort of the cryptic in literature to think that there's, it's possible that he sort of themed them according to the, some cosmological thing. Yeah. Anyway, look it up. Um, I'll send you a link. I don't think I'd be interested in your take on it. I don't think I'll look it up, but well, I don't think I'd really be interested in your take on it either. I was being polite <laughs> was, for the podcast. I know, I know, I know. But I, I feel like it's time for us to start to stop, uh, stop messing around and start getting real. You know. Okay, but before we leave this section of talking about, I'm not even sure what we're going to call it about aliens and outer space and stuff. I just want you, um, you, you used the word finitude earlier. Is that a word? I think finitude is a word, yeah. Not finality. Finality is a different thing. Is it? Okay. I'm, I, I wrote it down. I was querying it. I... Finitude is the state of uh, having lim- of limitation. 
right? I mean, finality ah. means coming to an end, but finitude means that it is finite. It is limited in some way. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I, I'm, I, yeah, finitude is a word. Cool. Thank you. Sure. I learned something new. Well, there you have it. Now, okay, what do we talk about now? <sighs> well, plenty of things, but none of them really are the news. Um, so I, <laughs> I hope that's all right with you. There, there is one news story that happened this week that I would like to talk about. All right, about go ahead. Let's have it out. Let's go. No, we, I, we, no, no, uh, no, 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 we no, 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 We can talk about it in whatever order you want. Well, I'm just saying I would like us to have some time to talk about what I think was the biggest news story this week by far. Uh, the arrest of Jean-Luigi Torsi? No, that happened last oh, week. Oh, that did happen last week. The appointment of a new judge at the Vatican City State Criminal Tribunal? No. No, no. Oh, no. the appointment of a new bishop in Hong Kong. Yeah. Yeah, that would be the one. That, uh, Let's talk about it. Because it's a big deal. And I'm not sure it is a, that we have... It's a ha- big freaking deal. I'm not, I'm not sure, sure that we've sufficiently... I, I'm not sure that we have... Yeah, I'm not sure people have understood it. I'm not sure that we've sufficiently sort of identified the ways in which it's a big deal. And so let's talk about that. So on Monday... Uh, uh, it was announced by the Holy See that uh, a new bishop has been appointed for Hong Kong, Father Stephen Chow, SJ, uh, who has been until now provincial of the Chinese provi- province of the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, who is Western educated, having gotten degrees at such places as Harvard, Loyola University of Chicago, and the University of Minnesota, uh, having been born in Hong Kong, having completed his novitiate in Dublin, that's in Ireland, if you're keeping score at home, having worked in the Catholic school system or on the Catholic school board of the Diocese of Hong Kong, and having been deemed as potentially acceptable to the various ecclesiastical and political factions in a complex environment, in the complex environment of Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, this guy is, by all accounts, a, a unicorn. Uh, you know, he's he's not someone that you know when you sort of drawing on because we have, I, I we have been following um, for for some time for years. For years, we have been following the situation of the church in Hong Kong, and and specifically the the attempts to find a successor to um, the previous bishop of Hong Kong who died in January 2019, and. You know, we 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 reported that um, the the initial choice was uh, Bishop Ha, who was the auxiliary bishop, that he was the sort of uh, obvious uh, successor candidate, and that Rome was ready to appoint him, and they had to pull his name at the last they minute. Had, his because, name had been approved and everything, but Bishop Ha yeah. went to the democracy protests. Uh, he was not just went; um, he was pictured. Yeah, he was. Fo- <laughs> there was you can't go anywhere. There was photographed, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, he was he was photographed at the front of a pro democracy protest uh, in 2019, protesting the Hong Kong executive's attempts to pass this extradition law to the mainland, which led to a year of basically rioting and and civil unrest in Hong Kong. Um, so his name got pulled. Then we we um, reported that the the next guy who also had sort of had papal approval and was all ready to go, and the press release is about to go out. Um, was uh, Father Peter Choi, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, who is uh, a vicar general of the Diocese of Hong Kong, mm-hmm. a seminary professor, um, and is also, you know, was was felt to be by many of the clergy and, and faithful of the Diocese of Hong Kong to be somewhat overly political in the other direction, to be extremely close to the um, the and sympathetic to the the mainland government to Carrie Lam, who is the chief executive of Hong Kong, and, and to be seen to be um, uh, a little too politically simpatico uh, to the Chinese, right. and so his name was yanked. And and it's been a long process for them to find someone since then. I mean, we I I, uh, I first heard Father Chow's name in 
I mean, I want to say November. I think it was September last year yeah, was yeah. the first time I, I heard his name and it was, he was being talked about and he was seen as like, you know, this is a guy who who really could square the circle. Um, he's not political. He's very much what what they've been looking for uh, to lead the diocese. It's just he's he's not sort of, quote unquote, a Chinese communist or, quote unquote, a pro-democracy Hong Konger. He's just a Hong Konger. Right. That that's what he considers himself. One of the things I found most interesting um, in his first press conference on Tuesday, in which he cited the Pillars reporting, thank you very much, um, is that he he was asked questions about um, you know various things that have been going on in the mainland with regards to Christianity and things like that. People asked him about you know pulling crosses off of church buildings and bulldozing shrines and stuff like that, and he gave a, a, a sort of very narrow and carefully worded answer, you know, saying, "Look, I I don't want to call it suppression, and I don't you know, I, and I you know, it's not that I'm afraid to say things that I that I think about this, but I think prudence is a virtue." And but what he said that I thought was really interesting is the other thing is I'm just not an expert on China. Right. I'm not an expert on what goes on. In China. And I thought this was a really loaded thing for him to say yeah. for people with ears to hear. Because China's whole thing with Hong Kong in the last two years, from the extradition law to the national security law, is to say there is no more special administrative region of Hong Kong right. for all intents and purposes. Right. It's all just China, baby. Right. And so for, for him at his first press conference to say to the media, to, to refer to China as basically another, another, place, another thing, a right. different country, yeah. was I found that very, very fascinating. Yeah. I thought that was um, – and I don't think he meant it deliberately. I don't think he – No, it's just how you know, he I'm is. Not, yeah, I think it's just it's how, how, he, how he perceives it, the it world. It was a yeah. glimpse of his mentality. Right. Is This guy is such a Hong Konger. He's like, well, no, China's over there. Right. I don't know anything about right. it. I'm from Hong Kong. Right. And I thought that was – I mean, that's, that's, that shows you exactly why this is going to be a very, very interesting pick for this diocese. And, of course, for Rome, this is a huge deal because – Having the Diocese of Hong Kong vacant during all of the political unrest that's been going on, you know, years of, of demonstrations, people being arrested, former politicians there being arrested, put to jail, Jimmy Lai being arrested, um, you know, the free press being suppressed, all of this stuff. Um, to have the Diocese of Hong Kong vacant through all of this and being led by um, Cardinal John Tong Hong, uh, who is beyond well beyond retirement age and yeah. well beyond 80. Yeah. Um, and, and you know has been himself behaving rather acutely as an overly cautious caretaker and clear that he's not in a position to sort of you know go to the mattress for anything right. here um it, it's been a real problem for the diocese of hong kong yeah. in terms of you know religious liberty in terms of how catholic education is being informed by state regulation in terms of what priests can say in their homilies all this stuff so having it vacant's been a real problem in itself but also this has been seen as uh, a, a real sort of emblematic, this is why the Vatican-China deal right. isn't working. That's what I wanted to say, is that this is the biggest deal about this is that how is how it relates to the China deal. And the thing is, Hong Kong isn't even technically supposed to be in, in the, the China, China deal. deal. But we have not known how is this actually going to play out. Is the Apostolic See going to find that it's free to actually make an appointment here? Is there right. going to have to be consultation? We have not understood any of this. So no, Hong Kong being vacant, and this is, and there was this sort of building tension, which you could feel, which is people were getting really worried because they've every, both sides are beginning to think, the, if we don't do something soon, the other side is going to blink right or and do and snap and do something that we don't want right. them to do on the vatican side there was the worry that the mainland was going to basically bring the cpca into the diocese of hong kong and say well if you aren't going to appoint a bishop of hong kong we are right and it's going to be a guy we pick and we dare you to not recognize yep. him and rome probably wouldn't have been in a position to resist it and there were growing fears on the chinese side from everything i've heard that rome was going to get frustrated or cardinal 
Tong was going to be unable to continue and they were going to be left with, you know, without even an administrator. And the Chinese were, and I've heard this from a couple of different people who have every reason to know, the Chinese were really freaking out that if somehow Cardinal Tong got incapacitated, the guy who would be left in charge would be Cardinal Zen. Right. And of course, everyone in Rome that I would mention this to would look at me like I was insane. Like, you, you've got to be kidding me. Cardinal Zen is practically 90. He's, you know, there's no, there is no confluence of events in which Cardinal Zen becomes apostolic administrator. But this was the a genuine Rock. concern of Beijing. The Chinese Communist Party were genuinely right. concerned that there was a there was a scenario that was perhaps unlikely, but certainly by no means impossible, where Cardinal Zen ends up being officially in charge of the Diocese of Hong Kong again and speaking his mind with the, the kind of candor and courage that he is known to do. And that to them was a situation that had to be avoided. Right. So there, both sides had a lot riding on this appointment. The fact that they found someone that whether or not the Chinese were consulted and officially signed off on, or at least are in no um, appear in no way disposed to uh, kick back against, is great. And this guy sounds like a good bishop. I mean, yeah. you know, I've been I've been listening to what he's been saying, and it's pretty encouraging. I'm, you know, I, he's not going to be combative. I I don't expect him to, you know, be taking to um, taking to the airwaves to denounce. Uh, the the Hong Kong chief executive office every time it does something that he disagrees with. But on the other hand, if you had told me six months ago that the in his inaugural press conference, the new bishop of Hong Kong would say, oh, yeah, I went to the illegal Tiananmen Square Memorial event last year outside Victoria Park. Right. And yeah, I would again, depending on, you know, the circumstances and, you know, what the police are doing and everything else. But yeah, I was there. Like I was, you, are you out of your mind? Yeah. There's no way they'll get a guy like that. Yeah. And here, and he, here is. he is. I, I'm, I'm very, I'm amazed. Yeah. So when, so his installation is in December. December 4th is the current scheduled date. Do you have an insight into that, Ed? Because it's May 20th. Do I have an insight into why his installation why is in six oh, months? Uh, no, the reason's been uh, the reason I think has been fairly publicly acknowledged, which is uh, he is you know in addition to becoming the next bishop of Hong Kong, he is the provincial of the Society oh, of Jesus in China, which is yeah, the, it's not a small gig. Yeah. You know the the Jesuits have been in China since Matteo Ricci, right. and they they that handover is not is you know if you thought appointing a bishop of Hong Kong was going to be interesting, you know we've reported on changes in um, in the law in China about the governance of religious institutions on the mainland, and the Jesuit province of the Society of Jesus is definitely one of those. So coming up with an election that is going to install a new provincial that is going to be um, not a problem for anyone is is going to be a I, I imagine a process that requires some delicate handling. So he's going to be managing his own departure from the SJs first before being consecrated bishop in December. Yeah. Well, that, that stands to reason. And he's a pillar reader. So I'm I'm just going to go to Hong well, Kong. Well, he's aware. And, uh, I mean, he's aware of the pillar. I'm not sure that we're yet prepared to say that he's a pillar reader. Uh, at least I'm not. But he certainly is aware, at least, the, of the pillar's reporting because we were the ones to report uh, the backstory. And he... Uh, Offered us even a correction, but he commented on our reporting thereupon, and uh, and so we do know that he is a reader. But I I think it'd probably be a bit much to say, you know, that he was aware of that story. But I think it'd probably be a bit too much to say that he's a reader, don't you? Well, I want to go to Hong Kong and see. If no, I, I think you should go to Hong Kong for the installation, to be sure. Although, how old will your baby be? It will be exactly none of your fucking business. Months old by then. <laughs> No, I it the, the the that will present a problem. Um, no, not a problem. It will present a del- it will present an opportunity for dialogue, JD. It will. It will. It will present an opportunity for constructive dialogue around the house. I think 
Um, I'm trying. I I think. Mm, I I I think. We'll see how persuasive I can be. I'm trying to recall. I went to Rome for like three weeks, right after the birth of some child, and um, uh, you know, it was an opportunity for a constructive dialogue both before and after. <laughs> I don't remember which child it was, but um, but my my only point is it may you know you may want to clear that as as all. I think I'll have to clear it. Although the, I, I've already raised the issue mm-hmm. and the. I would say the pushback is, um, I, I think, unwarranted. Uh, the, the, <laughs> sure. Of course you the, do. The, the, the overriding concern is not so much my absence as the possibility that I would get myself arrested while in Hong Kong. Sure. And, I, and I, given how many times you have said to me, wouldn't it be cool if I got arrested in Hong Kong? I can certainly understand where that concern might be coming from, can't you? I Look, I'm just saying from a journalistic perspective – an account of Christmas in a Hong Kong jail would be, I would read that. Wouldn't you? Yeah, I'd read it. I'm just, I, I'd read it and I'd love for you. And I, and I would love as your journalistic partner to publish it. I, uh, you know, I'd love for us to publish it. I just, you know, I can understand why Mrs. Condon would have different feelings about it than we do. But again, it's not that I, it's not that I think it would be a good thing or that it's likely to happen. This is, this is where, um, I, I think the negotiations have broken down as I don't view that as a very likely outcome. No, it's not I, a very it's not a very likely likely outcome at all, except for your enthusiasm for the possibility. And whether that would lead to sort of a subconscious decision on your part or a conscious decision on your part to um, test the waters, test the limits, to to, to find out sort of what the finitude of, uh, of, of 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 Hong Kong's national security law really is um, or not, you know, I think it would be in your mind that it would be interesting to be arrested and that could lead to all kinds of things, especially because like me, you have a disordered relationship to authority. I have a serious I, problem with authority and uh, and I and I don't think I'm alone in that. I, I would. That's not an unfair observation. Or no, it's not. <laughs> so I'm now just imagining myself wandering around Hong Kong on Boxing Day wearing a free Hong Kong T-shirt. Yeah, you would be. And 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 what you would get arrested for? You would. I don't know how you would spin it, but what you would get arrested for is not any of those things. You'd get arrested because you'd go to a Hong Kong bar, have a few. A policeman would say, you know, no jaywalking and you'd say something like i'm a journalist i can jaywalk anywhere i bloody well please which is a completely unreasonable position by the way and for that you'd be arrested and you'd want you'd want me i suspect to be making a whole free speech to do about it but we at the pillar we at the pillar do not have um a a persecution fetish we do not wish to uh to be uh to, to to find persecution under every rock and citation and if you mouthed off to a Hong Kong police officer and were arrested for that I'm not bailing you out I love leaving it speechless uh, <laughs> you you would be my only phone call I know. So. <laughs> I know. couldn't call my wife that's for sure no yeah and the truth is yes I'd bail you out I'd just be ticked yeah yeah Okay. All right. Maybe, maybe it's not a great idea. Yeah. You know what I think we should talk about now? Please. Um, it's not something that we have covered, but it is something that we are interested in and something that is sort of moving right along. But it is the decision of the United States Supreme Court to take a case 
related to uh, a, a law passed in the state of Mississippi, which places a limit on abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. It's an, it's, a, it's an important case for all those who are interested in the legal status of abortion in the United States. And given the amount of rhetoric that has been put into questions about the makeup of the court in recent years, it seems to be the sort of test case of um, a set of concepts about sort of um, uh, court appointments that have been long in the making. Uh, your thoughts? Uh, I feel like anything to do with the Supreme Court and the subject of abortion is Lucy with the football. I... I have I have zero expectations. I mean, I obviously I think um, abor- legal abortion in this country is a monstrous genocide. I think it is a grotesque injustice. I think it is unquestionably the preeminent or should be the preeminent social concern um, for Catholics to end. I would like to see it ended by any and all possible means. I have myself more than some intellectual sympathy with, and in fact, I many years ago I wrote a um, I wrote a leader for a magazine. Um, against the UK's abortion laws and changes to the UK's abortion laws, basically allowing the selective late-term abortion of Down syndrome children, arguing for personhood in, in the womb, legal personhood, and that, you know, this the, uh, allowing for selective abortions in the womb um, based on, on either genetic traits or gender or things like that was creating different classes of person by its nature. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the recognition of the personhood of the unborn um, strikes me as, as an obvious function of both common sense and the natural law, a legal principle to which I have no problem saying I subscribe. Um, so I, I tend towards that way of thinking. That said, I have I am by no means a, a sort of a, a, a strategic or tactical exclusionist mm-hmm. when it comes to these things. I yeah. you know challenge the challenge the appalling practice on any legal premise you right. think you can. Right. And if this is the one that gets to the court and it's about chipping away at it and you make the case on you know, the, the scope of the state's rights and, you know, fetal viability or whatever else. I mean, I don't care whatever works, whatever works. I really don't care. Um, you know, if we can save one child, it's worth it. So that I, I, I am, I can feel myself getting worked up about even as I speak, which is exactly what I don't want to do because as I was saying, I feel like this is Lucy in the football. Yeah. I have, I, I, you know, I, I find it almost impossible. And maybe this isn't even a, a rational reading of the court and the arguments that will be presented. Maybe this is purely just my own sort of cynical uh, experience talking here. We're saying, you know, I just, I just fully expect John Roberts or failing that, although John Roberts never fails to disappoint. Um, failing him, someone like Neil Gorsuch, just turning around and figuring out a way of saying, well, the last thing we want to do is challenge a god awful, terrible, extra legal, monstrous precedent because, you know, a precedent's a precedent no matter how small. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I just have no, I have no faith in the Supreme Court's ability to overturn this or their appetite to, you know. I'm sure Clarence Thomas would if you gave him half a chance. Sure. Uh, but, you yeah. know, he, he ain't the majority and I doubt very much we'll see him writing an opinion for the majority in this case. I, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. It's, 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 <laughs> I I I agree uh, that there sort of needs to be an inclusive aspect. I, I think that um, ending legal protection for abortion needs to be not only a preeminent social priority, as you said, but honestly needs to be a preeminent legal priority because 
legal protection for abortion itself is aberrant, the church says, not only sort of the existence of the thing, but laws which permit the thing are themselves unjust and, 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 and aberrant. And so those laws ought to be overturned. Um, and, and I think that it's good for people to sort of try and, and chip away at it in various ways. There's some that just strike me as a jur, you know, as a, a jurist. I mean, you know, you, you and I are trained to think legally about things. There are some sort of efforts of attempting to reduce or uh, limit legal protection for abortion that I find curious. For example, how should I say this? I am often asked about Down syndrome abortion bans because I have two children with Down syndrome, and many states have passed these bans that you know sort of prohibit abortion if the abortion is undertaken because of a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome because of a prenatal diagnosis of Down syndrome. And I just from a legal perspective have often been sort of skeptical of that kind of legislation because it portends to pass laws about action, about both actions and intentions in a way that seem very difficult to enforce in any meaningful way. Um, yeah, a thought crime right, law a thought is crime very, law. very difficult right. to enforce if at all now, possible. Now, all, all, all criminal law has some aspect of intentionality to it, right? I mean, what's the difference between mm-hmm. murder and manslaughter is intentionality and, and, and many other things too, right? Um, all, or being a Kennedy. <laughs> um, all, all crime has some aspect of intentionality to it. But when the idea is um, you can't do X if, you, if you're doing it for these motivations and you can do X if you're doing it for other motivations – what you're really prohibiting is the the, mo- the motivating factor, not sort of the action. Um, and mm-hmm. then saying, but you'll be pun- – you know, the, the difference between murder and manslaughter and intentionality there is you'll be punished in this way if your intention was this. You'll be punished in this way if you were negligent or your intention was this. And, and theoretically, a person could commit a homicide and not commit a crime if it was entirely – if they caused the death of another person, but it was entirely accidental and they had no culpability and those kinds of things, right? Well, so self-defense we can, is a homicide. Right, a homicide, right? So we can make distinctions. Um, but But always – um, the action itself was wrong. Now the question or, you know, the, the action itself was wrong under certain intentional circumstances, but we can meet those out. So that exists. But um, but this idea that like the action is generally permitted, but is forbidden if you do it for X reason seems to me to just be a, an extremely difficult law to actually enforce or pursue. And if the law is not actually enforceable or worth pursuing, you know, or, or worth, if the law is not actually enforceable or, um, or capable of being sort of meted out or being proven, if a violation of the law is incapable of being proven, then I, I myself just from legal training ask, well, what is the purpose of the law then? A law which cannot be enforced is actually does damage right. to the law, law and order as a principle, right? Yeah. So I see that and I think, well, as a lawyer, I have a ton of questions about the about the, the, the wisdom of this. With that said, I'm very, very glad for people to, to try to pass, pursue and try to pass all the different kinds of laws that prohibit the action of abortion under whatever circumstances they can. And the court can meet out my concern, right? And perhaps the court will agree with me and perhaps the court won't agree with me, but I'm not a member of any judiciary in the United States. Um, and uh, and so it's not, at the end of the day, up to me, right? So, right. Um, uh, uh, you know, so again, I, I, I'm with you on that, but I'm always skeptical when these things go to the Supreme Court um, that the right number of jurists will do the thing which limits legal protection for abortion. And I think that the civil unrest our country has experienced over the last year has given evidence of the degree to which civil unrest, which can become violent, is possible in this country, and that that is going, it could potentially have a mediating effect of Supreme Court justices on potentially explosive cases. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, 
I, I don't think you're wrong. Um, but I think when the, when the court, um, when the court has faced similar times in its history, when it's been called upon to review the legality of a morally repugnant and manifestly inhuman um, practice, and it has opted for attempts at uh, forestalling or compromising or yeah, preserving, splitting the steps. differences, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, um, that that is always um, pain deferred, right, and in many cases amplified because you're just trying to keep the cork in the bottle when it's not possible, and you know I. I think if you had, I, I don't want to, I don't want to frame this as a prediction because I'm not making a prediction. I, I wish to make the historical observation that if you had in 1850 suggested that there would be secession, civil war, and bloodshed on the scale uh, which we saw in the civil war down to the issue of the abolition or legality of slavery continuing in the country on a national basis, I think quite a lot of people would have said, you're insane. You're an alarmist. That's crazy. Right. Nobody's going to go to war over slavery. Right. Um, And I think looking back now, everyone who isn't morally abhorrent themselves would argue, well, we did, and I'm glad we did, and we should have, and that was the right thing to do. And no one would would argue that history should have gone differently in that circumstance. So I I merely look at that as the only now again that's analog to digital in terms of comparison. Um, you know we're we're not the same country. We don't have the same kind of governing structure. We aren't the same kind of society. And the differences uh, uh, on this issue are not as regionally circumscribed and no, tied into economics in the I mean, same way. It's a much and, more national right, picture. Yeah. It's not, a, it's not as yeah. much clear. Com- com- complicated question. Yeah. Yeah. It is not that compli- abortion is a far more complicated question, but no, the, no, the, the morality re- is equal is, is the same. I'm saying how the, how the country lives it and it is divided by it is, is very different. But when, you know, when people say, well, you know, if, if the court dared touch Roe v. Wade, which is not the problem, by the way. Planned, Her- Planned Parenthood, yeah, Planned Parenthood is, the is Casey is, and Planned is Parenthood Casey is bad law, right? I mean, one would it's hope that the court, law. one would hope, uh, sort of from that, that perspective, in any way, that the court would overturn Planned Parenthood versus Casey. But yes. uh, I think what we're both saying is our expectation of that <laughs> is very, very low. Right, having having seen having been seen us go down this road before, and I, I don't know, I I think frankly that doesn't even mean that people shouldn't keep going down the road. I I hope that states continue to pass challenges. Uh, to abortion as, as they have on any number of challenges, as we both said, and that the Supreme Court continues to face the possibility of these kinds of things and eventually make a decision or not, and something will come of that. But, you know, whatever, however that unfolds is however it unfolds. But I, I do think right now I'm skeptical that the Supreme Court will do the right thing just based upon what we have seen of the Supreme Court in recent years. I think, I, I think you're as likely to get a nice big dossier on little green men being delivered to the Senate. <laughs> um, but that's just me. I'm, I'm skeptical. Uh, I, I still think the easiest way, not the easiest, it's not easy. I still think the most, um, the, the clearest path to outlawing abortion in this country is to, to make abortion unthinkable, uh, to continue to promote. Hang on. I saw you roll your eyes at me there. And I, I want you to let me finish my thought. I'm going to let you finish your thought. Is to concentrate on making a, the, the full horror of abortion apparent at a cultural level. 
Um, and, and I don't mean sort of, you know, having nice talks with people and saying, you know, really, could you come around to my way of thinking and think about the, but to make it clear, you know, the, the science of abortion and how, um, how there really is very little between this and a, a sort of Dr. Mengele style approach to medicine, that this is, this is horrific stuff we're talking about to make that as culturally well understood as possible and to elect majorities in both chambers of Congress and someone in the White House who actually will uh, make this illegal. I think that is, I think it's far more easy to change the law through the legislature than it is to change it through the, the Supreme Court because for all the reasons we just discussed. Yeah. Uh, the reason I rolled my eyes is because what I thought you were going to say, I mean, sometimes people, sometimes people advance an argument, which um, per, perhaps even pursues like policy ideas, which I think are good, but which they think will have an effect on abortion that is less, that that would be less significant than they think. People say, well, you know, if we, uh, if we, if we expand the country's social safety net, which I think considerably that we should, I mean, you know, I tend to lean in lefty ways in all kinds of ways. But if we sort of expand a social safety net in any number of ways, then we'll reduce um, abortions. And the data, we, we had a story, I think, in January. You might that reduce some... the abortions a little bit, but I tell you, I don't think that you would reduce the appetite for legal abortion. Right. And the reason you wouldn't reduce the appetite for legal abortion is I think the people who are most strongly in favor of legal abortion, and you see them doing things like losing their collective minds when Liz Brunig writes a perfectly lovely right. Mother's Day reflection is these are not people who are worried about their lack of sufficient social safety or social security. Right. These are people who have been told it is better to have, you will have a better life if you don't have children. You will be a more fulfilled person if you abort your children. Well, well, and and they are discovering the, the absolute horrific lie in which they've been sold and have been bought into. But that's not going to change with an expanded social safety net, that there will still be people who are saying, no, 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 no. Life is materialism and egocentricity and motherhood is self-sacrifice. You don't want any of that. It will make you unhappy. We did, we did uh, some data analysis of the pillar in January that demonstrated that um, a higher number of unintended pregnancies ended in abortion among people of, uh, a higher percentage of unintended pregnancies ended in abortion among people of middle income or above mm -hmm. um, than did people who who were below the poverty line or who could be classified as low income. Um, now there are there are there are fewer ag in the aggregate um, number of unintended pregnancies for people who can be um, categorized as middle income or above, but as a percentage uh, of those pregnancies, a higher percentage of them are uh, end in abortion for for people in those categories. So the the point of that, which which. I, I don't want to be reductive about it because it's there's a complex relationship between income, uh, pregnancy, and abortion. But that's just the point. There's a complex relationship between in income, pregnancy, and abortion. And so the sort of narrative that says, "Well, we would not have abortion if we if, if we didn't have poverty," I don't think looks at the reality of moral the moral agency of human beings. Right? That that right. there are any number of reasons why people are invested in, in legal protection for abortion that are not. Uh, or, or why people have abortions that are not, and there, there's a lot of data about this too, that there are a lot of reasons why people have abortions that are not um, solely about uh, poverty, job security, health care, health insurance, social, you know, even even sort of social nets, right? There, there, are, there are other reasons. And so while I do think all those things are good in themselves, um, at the end of the day, it seems to me clear that the way to end abortion is for it to be illegal. Um, and yeah. there, a number of a number of responsibilities come along with that, that there is... 
a responsibility that our responsibility to the common good means a responsibility to ensure that women and children are not living in poverty, that they have affordable access to health care, that they have affordable access to employment, you know, to employment and all these other things, uh, to just education, to just housing, all of these other things. Those are serious responsibilities for the common good that policy has to play a role in solving. Um, but um, but uh, abortion itself um, is is a choice that um, is not eradicated solely by by addressing those things, that the way to end abortion is, is, is to make it illegal or at least to dramatically reduce it. Yeah. Some people, some people, I, um, some people elect abortions out of situations of perceived desperation, right. which you can do things to help with, but it's And, and not... ought to, as a matter of justice. I mean, I really want to be clear. I have really yeah, yeah, yeah. opinions I mean, about as a matter of justice about healthcare and these kinds of things. For sure. For sure. But I am not persuaded that anyone is in good faith pushing for abortion um for that reason i think that the the general premise of the abortion lobby is that fewer people are better usually fewer poor people is a better right. thing and, and, and um you know i well i think the track record of planned parenthood alone is pretty clear which is they think fewer black people is a good thing that certainly seems to be the output that they've been pushing for and it certainly was the philosophy of their founder um and, and and among abortion advocates now, there is a whole tr- – there's there's a there's a sort of this theme emerging of like uh, abortion positivity. Celebrate your abortion. Yeah. Proclaim your abortion. That's not safe – that's not the same as the sort of safe, legal, and rare mantra of nope. you know, Clinton-era Democrats, right? Um, celebrate no. your abortion. Proclaim your abortion. Abortion positivity. Um, that's the kind of thing that says – uh, that that that's rooted this is in what I was talking about. Is, right. These are people who are saying that this is a this is a means to self actualization, to self actualization, self determination. These kinds of yeah. things, which essentially means we don't perceive, regardless of the natural relationship you have with any other human being, we don't perceive that that relationship should impede you in any way from doing exactly the thing that you want to do at any given time. Yeah. Now, I don't think that most people who have had an abortion feel that way. I suspect that abortion is a, is a genuinely dramatic no, 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 experience. This is, this is my things. whole point. But this is, is the that way that it's marketed. You are is not that going to eliminate to the supply self- side right. of abortion right. by eliminating the demand or trying to Thank alleviate the that. demand side. Yeah, You're you. not. Because right. the supply side is operating on a totally separate agenda. Precisely. Which is the, the supply side of the abortion industry is not in favor of poverty alleviation, is not in favor of helping people in desperate circumstances. The supply side of abortion is in favor of aborting children. That's what mm-hmm. they're in favor of. Mm-hmm. That that's it. That's their business model. Is there are pregnant women? We would like to abort their children. Mm-hmm. That's that's the philosophy. There's no there, there's no underlying humanitarian perspective there. Everything else is just a marketing gimmick. And that's why next week, Ed, you and I, I don't know if it's going to be next week, but you and I eventually are going to have a con- have to have a conversation, a conversation that a lot of Catholics are having about sort of. Um, Modes, modes and philosophy of government, a conversation which we have been avoiding, but a conversation we're going to have to have. There's one more thing I want to say, uh, though, about what happens with a Mississippi case like this, is I think you and I are both skeptical that the Supreme Court will do the right thing, and I am too. I suspect that Supreme Court analysts at Planned Parenthood are skeptical that um, uh, that the Supreme Court will overturn um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey with this Mississippi case. I suspect that they think that there's a low probability of that happening based upon the the, the, you know, the track record of the Supreme Court on these kinds of things. Now, that doesn't right. mean that but they're these kinds of cases... The next several months fundraising, like that's fund- exactly yeah. what I wanted to say. Is that what these things end up becoming is uh, is 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 panic theater for all of the people who are kind of involved for 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 many people who are involved in this kind of thing. It's like this is the most important thing ever to happen and give us money right now. 
And, um, and I, and I will say it again. I think that these kind of cases should keep making their way to the Supreme Court, even while I'm skeptical that the Supreme Court is going to act on any one of them, because I hope that the aggregate of them, you know, eventually leads to the Supreme Court acting. But, um, but I'm skeptical that, that, that in this case, the Supreme Court will do the thing. Um, but the kind of fundraising that we will see, um, and the kind of sort of aggressive, uh, um, sky is falling, um, tactics that we will see over the next few months, I think will be, will, will give us an indication of the real motivation on a lot of this stuff, which is that it leads to, um, uh, that to, to some opportunity. This is democracy. It's, and there's, so there are industries, right? There are advocacy industries and, yes, um, this and is, opinion but, uh, making industries, right? Yeah. Um, and those things depend on a certain kind of homeostasis with one another in order to continue uh, making straight I, I, cash, homie. I have written before about my problems with our binary democratic process as an agent of cultural fracture. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, rather mm-hmm. than unity and that it does it is designed to be divisive that that's the natural outcome um and i probably will again if we're going to have that conversation at some point i probably will write about that again but yes just to say that the bottom line is uh there's a lot of money in in people being upset and terrified and uh convinced that it's the end of the world but you know <laughs> If the world really is, never believe someone who says it's the end of the world as we know it. So please write me a check. That's a that's a pretty good way of knowing that it's, uh, it's confected. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, that this is what abortion is about, and it's what abortion has always been about in this country, which is people getting rich, people mm-hmm. making money. That's right. That's, that's and you know, and and so one of the things for us to talk about is the way in which. Um, the way, I mean, honestly, this is why, this is why these questions are complicated. The morality of abortion is not complicated, but this is why we have to try to see the whole board. Um, mm-hmm. the, um, the sort of two income trap, an economic model, which is predicated upon the notion that both adults in a household will be earners, um, depends upon abortion for its sustainability and depends upon abortion positivity from, you know, abortion activists and merchants let me, um, in yeah, order let to, me, to make that possible. I, I was going to say, it, does the does the two-income model depend on abortion for its sustainability, or does abortion depend on the two-income model? Well, um, I, I would argue that... I would the, say that there's a symbiosis. I, I Not just a symbiosis. I would say that the the creation of one over the last 40 years is is not unrelated to the other that what happened first the widespread availability of contraception and abortion or the necessity of two incomes in a household right so the sexual revolution the sexual revolution becomes the catalyst for the two income trap and those who and and therefore those who sort of participate in the two income trap which is to say american wage earner earners are um <laughs> are unwittingly expected to do unnatural and inhumane things by the system in which they live. Right. This is what I'm just saying what, what, what the chicken, you know, the egg that hatched to give us this chicken was the the sexual sexual revolution. revolution. Yeah. Great. Yeah, we didn't create a two income system. We go, oh, shit, we better invent this. We better figure out a way to abortion. Just let me keep in it. Right. Exactly. Right. Mm hmm. No, no, no. Okay. All right. That's enough of that. Here's stuff we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You know what today is? Uh, today is my brother's birthday. Happy birthday, bro. Happy birthday, Luke. Are we allowed to say his name? Yeah, I don't mind. His, okay. I don't, I'm not concerned about his privacy. Okay, I'm going to read his address out loud then. Okay. Okay. No, I won't do that. But 500 years ago today, um, 
a young Spanish soldier was uh, was uh, was fighting in a battle against some other local Spanish soldiers. I think it was a more or less regional battle, and a cannonball came ripping through the oh, lines and of knocked him knocked his poor leg right off, or it didn't, but fractured it in several places and laid him up. And uh, and while he was laid up, recovering from that um, injury, he had very little to read, and so he began to read a life of Christ, which changed his life. And soon enough, he was Saint Ignatius of Loyola. So, you know, cannonballs can do that to you. They can. You know the thing. Do you know about Saint Ignatius' second leg break? You know that when he, um, he his leg was set, his leg was hurt by cannonball, and then it was set, and then it healed. But it was somewhat shorter than the other one, which would have left him with a lifelong limp. Oh, so they broke so it. So he had them break it again and stretch it out. It's a bar. I have never known whether that was vanity or necessity. I think it's necessity. If, if I mean, it, it's no joke. If you have one leg shorter than the other, some people do, and they have to get really specialist orthopedic footwear or whatever. Like it's no joke. It it is a, it is a daily. It's not an inconvenience. It's yeah, a thing. Yeah. Well, good to know. All right. Well, Ed, it's been a pleasure. Uh, well, actually, would you would you like to play a game? Yeah, sure. If you got one, we haven't played one in a long time. No, we haven't. We haven't played a game in a long time. It's uh well summer's here, at least yeah. in Washington. It's um, it's like thirty degrees outside right now. I don't know what that is in American money, um, <laughs> but it's hot. Did you guys have to play Quidditch when it was thirty degrees, or did you get the day off from practice? Yeah, mercifully, I I went to school before the Harry Potter books that were a thing. So. Oh right. So did you guys have to play polo when it was thirty degrees out, or did you get the day off? Uh, the school I went to actually is the site of the first recorded game of cricket. Wow. The first written record of cricket being played was by the students of my school. Okay. That's interesting. That's what we played when it was warm outside, JD. But all that flannel. So this is an interesting thing is Americans have this popular conception that cricket is a stuffy game of like the no, upper I just echelons. No, the uniforms were flannel. No. Um, no, I think in England probably soccer is the upper class game and cricket is the working class game. Well, anyway, cricket like baseball um, – the, the reputation of cricket, like baseball, was for most of its early history um, extremely blue-collar and disreputable. It was, mm-hmm. um, you know, gambling uh, and match-fixing and throwing was a big problem. Um, cricket matches were, were not a place you'd take the family. You know, there were usually some, um, some pretty unsavory characters there. And it was also very widespread in the United States of America. The first international cricket match ever played uh, was played, if I'm not mistaken, in New York State, and it was the United States versus Canada. Oh, wow. So there's been an American national cricket team before there was an English national cricket I, team. I don't care about cricket at all, but I have no doubt that we would be dominant at it in, in without even trying. I think you'd have to try, but that, that neither here nor there. Um, but anyway, it's, summer is here, was my point. And uh, so I have uh, composed a summer game of greater or lesser. Sounds great. Let's do it. All right. Uh, JD, your first set for summer greater or lesser is pool, beach, and backyard. Where do you want to go swimming? What does swimming in the backyard mean? Well, you know, like paddling pool, sprinkler, that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm sorry. I didn't realize you were the muddied upper class with your own pool in your backyard. I just I... didn't understand what backyard swimming meant. Isn't yeah, that what get, a pool you know, is? Like a, a, you know, a paddling pool that you get from Home Depot or Walmart or whatever. You, you know, it goes up to your knees and, you know, it's okay. nice. Yeah, no, no, no. I understand now what you mean. I We have that in the backyard. I just don't think of it as something that adults go into. 
maybe that's a cultural difference. I don't know. But I guess I would say, I I, I want to say beach, right? I feel I, I have actually, this is an ongoing debate with my wife and I, because when we go on vacation, if we go somewhere where we're at the beach, I often sort of say perfunctorily, like, I need to go in the ocean or whatever, but I, I actually prefer to be in the pool. It just, I pref- I would prefer to prefer the ocean, if that makes sense. That's that's very self-aware of you. Yeah. So um, so sticking with my longstanding preferences about my preferences, I'm going to say uh, beach, pool, backyard. Interesting. Um, how about you? No, I, I guess that's not how the game works. No, no, no. Yeah, you, uh, you're saying beach is greater than... Beach is greater than pool is greater than for swimming backyard. Yeah, this is personal preference. I for myself, I would probably, I, I would probably say, um, beach is greater than backyard is greater than pool, and I tell you for why. Um, I don't particularly like going to the beaches. I think we've mentioned on the podcast before, mm-hmm. although I can't remember why we were discussing that. Um, but if you've if you've got to go to a body of water, you want to go to one with a large, preferably unbounded body of water. Um, usually if I have agreed to go to a beach, it's somewhere in a country on a coastline where the food is going to be exceptional. So I'm probably mm-hmm. going to eat well. So I'd be in favor of that. But even if you're at the beach, if there's a pool at the beach, wouldn't you rather be in the pool at the beach? No, I was going to say no. So I'll get to the pool is definitely bottom of the pile. Like it's, it's beach backyard because um, – there's nothing wrong with getting a, a, a knee-deep paddling pool um, in your backyard, filling it up from the hose, sticking your lawn chair in the middle of it, floating a six-pack in the in the cold water, and, and cracking open a book. Like, that's, that's a perfectly respectable way to spend a summer's afternoon. Um, put a game on the radio. Uh, yeah, nothing wrong with that. And pool is definitely bottom of the pile, JD. Because if you're go- and this is the this is the main reason why backyard is superior to pool. If you're going to have a contained body of water, a small contained body of water, it better be just yours. I don't I don't share fluids with strangers. I have no desire to go in a public pool. None. Huh. I will say that for a while I had been thinking about getting, and then it sort of got trendy and I didn't want to have it anymore for that reason. But for a while I had been thinking that it would be neat to make a, to put in a sort of stock tank pool. Do you know what I mean if I say a stock tank pool? Is that an above ground pool? No, do, a stock tank is just what it sounds like. It is a galvanized metal tank oh, that is designed like for the hydration of, yeah, well, it's designed for sort of the hydration of cattle, let's say. Um, but one could, by putting some drainage holes in the bottom of it and putting it on a bed of rocks, sort of turn it into a place for that kind of setting that you're talking about. Um, and I have sort of, for a while I was thinking about doing that, but now I see that that's become sort of a, a hipster thing and I can't do With it anymore. With stock tanks it has? Yeah. I mean, they're buying, they're not going, they're not going to tractor supply. They're buying, you know, like anthropology stock tanks probably for triple the price, but. I love tractor supply, by the way. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. Me too. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I was talking to my wife the other day. I was suggesting to her that this be – so we there, – there was a summer a few years ago where we raised some ducks and I really enjoyed it. And I was suggesting to her that this would be a good summer for more ducks. But I made a mistake with the duck the, the ducks the last time, which is that I sexed them myself and mm-hmm. um, and I mistakenly sexed them. I thought that I had two ladies and then as they grew out feathers, I realized that I had two fellas. And so I – and so that they were just not what we'd hoped in terms of temperament, disposition, behavior and laying capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, therefore, when I was sort of suggesting to Kate the other day that we should go uh, to a feed store and buy some ducklings, now while it's her duckling season, she was skeptical. 
I expect to be at a tractor supply this weekend. I will have a look at the ducklings and yeah. see where we are on the on the if if uh, maybe they will sex them for you. I think they. I think they'll sex them. I don't know. I don't know if they'll sex them for you. It's a liability, right? I mean, I wouldn't want it. If I were them, I would yeah, not. Yeah, you might get an uneven split in terms of what you're selling, mm-hmm. um, and they yeah, might plus, get it wrong. That's the other thing is they don't know what to do with the mallards, right? I mean, they, right. Everybody wants it. This this could just Drakes, be something you get good at. This could well quite. This could just be something you got good at, though. I I have to, I have to tell you, I have watched a lot of YouTube's about how to sex a duckling, but I did it. I didn't do it right. I've told you about my my early year resume. Yes. I, yeah. Yeah. Competitive competitive animal sexing um, is a strong hobby. I I recommend it. I've never done it myself, but I've claimed to be good at it, and mm-hmm. uh, I recommend. It. Okay. Moving on. Um, Summer, uh, summer recreational activity, fishing, golf, ultimate frisbee, quote unquote. Oh, I wish you'd said frisbee golf because I feel like I'm getting a little old for ultimate frisbee. But still, I went to Steubenville and that's the university pastime. So I guess I would have to say ultimate frisbee fishing and then golf is just a good walk spoiled as it were. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, that's not, that's not what I would have done. No. Um, You'd be wrong. Good, good summer activities, JD, are uh, are best defined by your ability to consume beer um, while you're doing them. And I've never played ultimate frisbee, although I've seen it played, and it doesn't it does not appeal to me. Um, I think you're mistaken if you presume that a lot of beer can't be consumed during its play. Well, it seems like there's a lot of running around, and mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. difficult for beer consumption for me. Um, okay. Fishing, yeah. you can definitely drink Sounds while you're like fishing. A problem. Golf. Um, you can, you will break in the middle and they will often construct places in the middle of the golf course for you to break halfway through the game where you can consume beer, uh, in the middle of the game, which I'm in favor of. So I would, I would have said the correct order there was fishing golf, ultimate frisbee. Is this for real that you've never been fishing? I've never been properly. I think I've been bait fishing. I've been bait fishing on a lake for sure. You've been angling. What you're saying is you've never been fly fishing. I've never been fly fishing. Okay. Well, we're going fly fishing. I would like to do that. I, I, my favorite book is about fly fishing. So I know, I'm run through it. Yeah, and, and if you favorite. recall, I was preaching that for a pillar meeting in Jan. I was preaching that we go winter fly fishing in January, back when it was January and you were out here, but it didn't end up happening. But the next time that there's a pillar meeting in Colorado, we'll go catch some steelheads or whatever it is. We'll Sounds get a like guide, obviously, because yeah. I don't know okay. the right word. Yeah. Um, summer footwear, JD. Uh, Flip flops, Birkenstocks, or bare feet? None. I had um, around April first put on chacos and almost exclusively wear them until around I don't know Halloween. What are chacos? Cha- really? Not really. I, I mean, I'm assuming I will know what they are once you describe them to me or show them to me, but I, I don't know the word. Chacos are the sandals that I wear from April first to Halloween. Are you wearing probably them, now? them on my feet? No, because I'm barefooted right now i'm in my office i'm but. not that kind of guy jd i don't look at your feet I, okay chacos are a sandal that the chacos are a sandal that, that well they, they've since been purchased by a corporation and they've gotten a little but chacos were a sandal that were developed actually by coloradans um to be able to sort of handle the sort of rugged outdoor living that we coloradans do and um and still stay in in good shape and are they closed well are they moccasins no they're not closed toed they're they're open toed they're they're they use um like um cord like back, kind of back backpack strap cord for the for the feet thing and um and it's all one adjustable strap that um can be adjusted inside of the sole and they are awesome okay 
Interesting. They the Souls used to be. Uh, it used to be when Chacos was its own company, and the Souls are good even rubber and stuff. But when Chacos was its own company, if you wore them out, you could send them back, and they'd resold them for you for free, and then send them back to you. I see. And then for a while, you could send them back, and they'd like and pay like I don't know fifteen or twenty dollars, and they'd resold them for you. And now Chaco is owned by some gigantic foot corporation. And I think if you send them a pair, they'll send you like a coupon for $15 off or something like that. So terrible. Okay. Um, just for the record, the, the correct so no. answer was there was um, bare feet and then flip-flops and Birkenstocks are both wrong. Agreed. Um, wear shoes or go barefoot. There is no in-between. Open-toed but- shoes are for ladies. Um but in the West, I, I can appreciate that on the East Coast, but in the West, the culture is different. And some sandals yes. are completely culturally acceptable in nearly every environment. You are very close to California, I understand. No, um, no, no. I, I, I'm not saying that. This is an outdooring place. So at any given time, like you might be just like at the bank and then someone would be like, hey, bro, I have two kayaks on top of my car. Do you want to go kayaking for a while? And you have to be prepared for that. I, I would prepare for that by taking my shoes off. But, oh, well, then you'd be doing okay. Um, okay, uh, JD, uh, for your backyard barbecue, and I want to, I want to, I want to narrow the field here. Um, we're not talking about barbecue, properly speaking. Things to grill. Yeah, this is a, this is your this is your runcible Weber charcoal grill. Yep. You have um, less than twenty four beers, more than five adults. Uh, this is a this is a quick and dirty backyard grilling that we're mm-hmm. talking about here. Uh, hot dogs, burgers, or chicken legs? Chicken legs. Okay. And then? Oh, right. I kind of forgot how it goes. Yeah. Chicken legs, burgers, hot dogs. Okay. Interesting. For, for a lot of reasons. One of which is that a hot dog should be boiled. What? Yeah, a hot dog should be boiled. Uh, you know okay. that, though. I mean, that's, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Okay. No, you, I mean, yeah. No, you you want to do bratwurst on the grill? Okay, um, uh, JD, bathing suits. You're um, you're gonna rank for me, please. Board shorts, banana hammocks, and burkinis. Burkinis is like a burk. I presume a burka that's also a bathing suit. Yeah, it's a kind of um, loose fitting wetsuit that they've designed for for the preservation of personal modesty. Personally, it looks to me like the sort of thing you drown in in a riptide, but. People wear them. They wear them in Australia. They wear them um, in in beaches where there's, uh, for example, a majority conservative Muslim population. They they sell them. They sell them in places. I'm glad that they sell them, but I must say I don't I don't feel comfortable ranking the things in this category. For your personal preference about what you would wear on a beach, you don't feel comfortable. Well, I obviously wouldn't wear a burkini because it's designed for you, a woman. And no, you can you can get dude one. I mean, you might have very sensitive skin that's prone to sunburn. A dude one is just a wetsuit. I I I it's it's a woman. It's a kind of woman's bathing suit, and I don't feel comfortable ranking that. Okay. Out of respect, out of modesty, my own personal modesty. I okay. How dare you? Fine. <laughs> plus, I don't think I think I sunburn very easily. I, I don't think I can bring myself to say the words banana hammock more than that one time. Speedos, if you prefer. Nah, let's move on. Uh, we're just going to infer that you're a board shorts kind of guy. Um, Bathing okay. suits should be seen and not heard about. You're a little touchy about this, JD. I, I just I'm pr- I'm prudish about some things. One of them is ever saying again the phrase banana hammock. <laughs> God's sake. <laughs> 
I, I had no idea this would be this would be a sore spot for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, uh, JD, choose your weapon: water balloon, super soaker, or garden hose. Oh, super soaker is the best. Garden hose is kind of not that cool because it's cold. You know, the water's cold, and you know it's a lot and everything. And it's kind of at that point you're just you're not playing fair because there's probably only one in the yard. And a water balloon, a water balloon's great. You know, a water balloon is great, but then you got to pick up all the. See, you got. I'm thinking like a dad now. You got to pick up all those darn pieces and so super soaker is where it's at do you remember when we were kids i don't know if they were doing this in england but in, they were certainly doing it in new jersey in new jersey there was a rash of crime in the mid-90s when the super soaker came out um in which kids were putting bleach in them and then driving around in cars and shooting at other kids no i i was living in america when super soakers came out i do remember them happening um where where i lived i was unaware of any trend to shoot bleach at Oh. Perhaps it's just a New Jersey thing. But this uh, yeah, happening. this this may well be a New Jersey thing, Jamie. Yeah, mm-hmm. it sounds yeah. like a really New Jersey thing. I mean, it was like it was like the summer of people putting bleach in in super soakers and kids. Yeah, mm-hmm. what? Well, because blinding people is fun. What? Um, because kids have bad ideas. Because kids are kids. Kids are wicked. That's shocking. Okay, that kids are wicked. Um, You'll find out. <laughs> uh, okay, GD, summer irritations, mosquito bites, sunscreen application, and sand in your shoes. I've solved sunscreen application by only using spray on sunscreen. I haven't used non-spray sunscreen in a number of years because I don't care for it. Um, I uh, um, wear Chaco, so sand in my shoes is not really an issue because if they're if they're sandy, I just dunk them in some water and then put them on and they're fine. So that would leave mosquito bites. But my real summer irritation is yellow jackets. A few years ago, I stepped on a yellow jacket and got stung on the bottom of the foot. And it was awful. And since then, I have been extremely paranoid about keeping my property a yellow jacket-free zone to the point where, like, you know, the kids will be in the what you call paddle pool, you know, in the backyard thing, just kind of doofing around. And I'll see a yellow jacket across the yard and make them go inside while I deal with it. Wow. Okay. All this could have been avoided if you'd worn proper footwear, but all right. Well, I was uh, barefoot at that time. Ah, okay. Uh, JD, where do you want to drink your beer? The parish barbecue, the block party, or alone with a radio? Hmm. <clears throat> Those all sound fun, but for different reasons. Um, yeah, so I'm not even going to comment. I'll just end it. Uh, parish barbecue ranks higher than alone with a radio ranks higher with block party. Nice. Done. And uh, that's all I have. And But I to put a note here, finally, Ajiti, if you could give us your top three songs for a lawn mowing playlist. Oh, I listen to, um, I listen to, uh, um, I generally listen to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me While I Mow the Lawn. You listen to NPR while mowing the lawn. Wait, wait, don't tell me. It's not like, I mean, it's, you know, it's fun. It's the most JD thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Summertime Project. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn, and I am joined by Ed Flip-Flop Condon, and we will see you next week. 